0: Les habla Manuel Trau Ramos, editor del Sol Latino. Hoy estamos 11 de agosto del 2020. Estamos grabando nuestra edición número 29. Estamos tras... Sigo, Natalia. Sigue, sigue. Uno, eh, dos y tres. para allá. Ok, estamos transmitiendo desde Pioneer Valley en el oeste de Massachusetts. Como de costumbre, nos acompaña la directora de Noticias de Holyoke Media, Natalia Muñoz. Saludos. Eh, Hoy tenemos eh, como invitado especial a un reconocido autor, poeta, artista, profesor, amigo, profesor de la Universidad de Massachusetts en Amherst. Además ha sido posiblemente uno de los amigos más fieles al sol latino desde más de 10 años y ha colaborado con nosotros. Por lo tanto, le damos la bienvenida a Martín Espada. Eh, Martín, eh, igual que mi mentor eh, Luis Fuentes, es de Brooklyn, Nueva York. Ha publicado más de 20 libros, como poeta, editor, ensayista, traductor. Y su último trabajo literario es una antología que es sumamente vigente en estos momentos, pero no necesariamente nos vamos a restringir a la antología. Eh, En el caso de Martín, podemos irnos por diferentes caminos desde política, literaria, poesía, Pero vamos a empezar con el, la antología que se publicó el año pasado, cerca de octubre, llamada What Save Us? Poems of Empathy and Outrage in the Age of Trump. Martín, bienvenido.
1: Muchísimas gracias, Manolo. Uh, y es un honor estar aquí contigo y con Natalia. Gracias. Um, sí. Y vas a hablar de un libro, vas a hablar de la antología, What Saves Us, uh, también de eh, un libro mío que va a salir uh, en enero del año que viene, se llama Flotus. Uh,
0: ¿Cómo se llama? Florus, okay. con uh-huh. F,
1: con F. Um, y, y varias otras cosas. Y varias otras cosas, sí. Eh? Y... y Y, y Biden y Kamala si, si quieres
0: y vamos, y vamos a oír a Martina sobre un una poesía que se publicó en 80 grados que 80 grados una es una revista online en Puerto Rico muy reconocida sobre Betance que la vamos a reproducir el mes que viene en el periódico El Sol Latino por la conmemoración del grito de la red Dime, vamos a empezar con el libro de antología. ¿Por qué creaste ese libro? Bueno,
1: es importante como poeta hacer un récord de nuestra época. ¿Cómo vamos a explicar al futuro la presencia de Trump, el impacto de Trump uh, la cultura de Trump, la política de Trump y la resistencia más importante. ¿Cómo va a explicar a la historia el fenómeno de Trump? Bueno, uh, por eso, como editor, hice una colección de poemas en un libro, What Saves Us. Poems of Empathy and Outrage in the Age of Trump, uh, publicado por uh, Northwestern University Press. Um, y es un libro que, que tiene más que 90 poetas. Poetas como Julia Álvarez, como Richard Blanco, como Carolyn Fosche, como Aracelis Germay, como Juan Felipe Herrera como Youssef Komunjaka como Dennis Smith como Ocean Vuong como Martín Espada el editor puede incluir su propio poema en el libro um, y es un documento de, de la resistencia um, de la, la violencia en contra de nosotros pero también la resistencia La brutalidad de, de la policía, pero también la resistencia a ah, la pobreza, pero también la resistencia ah, eh, voces de, de la clase trabajadora eh, en la fábrica o, o los campos a ah, voces proféticas, ah, porque tenemos que imaginar un mundo mejor, un mundo sin Trump. la cultura de Trump, los valores de Trump, todo eso tiene que desaparecer, Natalia.
2: Eh, Gracias. When you were putting together, uh, compiling this book of poetry by some phenomenal poets, including yourself naturally, were any of you surprised by Trump Uh, the night of the election almost four years ago? Or did your poetry come out of the, the surprise of Trump ascending to the White House? Mm.
1: There were uh, many poets in this collection who actually wrote about uh, the uh, uh, day of the election or the immediate aftermath of the election. Um, and some of them indicated shock. Some of them indicated um, a desire just to roll up the sleeves and get to work. Like Mm -hmm. now this is the first day that we fight back, you know. Um, I I think there were people who were watching closely that day who weren't surprised at all, you know. And if anything, we learned that we can't rely on the polls to tell us who's going to win if Trump is is one of the uh, people running for office. So I'm not comforted by the polls we see today Mm-hmm. That show, Joe Biden with the lead. Uh, you know, I understand he chose his vice president today, and it was Kamala Harris. I think that's, uh, you know, it, it is the bare minimum that Biden needed to do. You know, he's, there's a lot more work to do, and I wish he would come out of the basement. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, the, the hmm. poets, a lot of the poets, you know, they they, they wanted to document that moment because it was for better or worse, a historic moment. Mm -hmm. But then the book, I made a point as the editor of the book to go way beyond Trump. So it's not just about Trump. It's about the culture of Trump. It's about the values of Trump. It's about what Trump represents. And it's about everything we have to resist. As I said, whether it's police brutality, uh, uh, poverty, uh, uh, mass shootings, all the things that, uh, you know, Trump, we have to keep in mind, is this a symbol of of the powerful interests that he represents.
0: I have a question about your title of the book, What Saves Us? <laughs> now,
1: what does that means? Okay, yeah, que significa, what saves us? Bueno, I un poema titular de de Bruce Weigel y Bruce Weigel es un veterano de Vietnam y él escribe de un momento antes de salir antes de ir a Vietnam con, con una mujer Y él dice, y voy a leer un poquito del uh-huh. poema ahora. El poema What Saves Us. El parte del de poema dice, y él, él, él está con una una mujer y, y dice, she reached to find something, a silver crucifix and a silver chain, the tiny savior's head hanging and stakes through his hands and feet. She put it around my neck and held me so long the black wings of my heart were calm. We are not always right about what we think will save us. I thought that dragging the angel down would save me, but instead I carried the crucifix in my pocket and rubbed it on my face and lips nights the rockets roared in. People die sometimes so near you you feel them struggling to cross over. The deep untangling of one body from another. Hmm. So, what's going to save us? La compasión. Right? La compasión. Y, y, y que falta tro? La compasión.
2: Hmm. So, at the, o sea, um, uh, uh, the elections on November 3rd, make no mistake, this does not end. On November third, uh, what saves us, like you said, this is long range. This is not about this four-year term that happened.
1: Yeah, and and uh, first of all, as we all know that if, even if it's a landslide, it, Trump probably will refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the election. He is already setting up a fraud claim uh, due to mail-in ballots. He has made it almost impossible for most of us to vote safely due to COVID-19. And, and now he has discredited mail-in ballots as fraudulent. There's no evidence of that at all, of course. He's going to refuse to leave or dispute the results. It wouldn't be the first time in American history that this happened. Um, and so, yes, we have more work to do immediately. But even if he does leave, even if he packs up and leaves immediately, we still have to get rid of everything he represents, Mm -hmm. you know, and the devastation of this pandemic has, has meant that we need to reassess everything about the way we live. We have to have the vision to triumph over all the pandemics in our lives. The pandemic of COVID-19, of course, the pandemic of racial oppression, mm-hmm. the pandemic of poverty, uh, the pandemic of uh, 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 the, the human rights violations on the border. You know, this is an opportunity for vision, vision and visionaries. And this is why we look to history. What did the visionaries do when they had to deal with their own pandemics, their own uh, crises to try to revolutionize their societies.
0: Martin, you mentioned that you are writing another book. Is this new book related to this one or is a quite different topic?
1: Well, you know, for me, it's always it's always the same. Political poems never go out of style political poems never become irrelevant because, because we we have these crises with us always, you know, we have, uh, you know, so this next book is, is a new project and yet it's not so new. Um, It's called Floaters. The title poem is about uh, the two Salvadoran migrants Oscar y Valeria, who drowned crossing the Rio Grande between uh, Matamoros and Brownsville, Texas. Hmm. And there are other poems there about the frontera. There are poems there about uh, Puerto Rico, of course, as in all of my books. There are elegies, elegias for people like Luis Gardena Acosta, a uh, poem called Soñando. Uh, Luis was a great community organizer in Los Sures in Williamsburg, Brooklyn who was a mentor of mine Um, that book ends uh, as as the anthology includes the same poem with my poem Letter to My Father Mm Carta a mi padre sobre huracán María y el impacto en Puerto Rico especialmente en Utuado donde nació mi padre en 1930 Entonces, mis proyectos son nuevos, pero nunca nuevos.
2: There's a, a Martín, your poetry is, um, is, is, uh, this is, this is going to sound uh, cliche, but, and I apologize. It, you go deep into the, your subject. It's like you go inside the other people's skin, so that you can, then you can come out, and then you write about it. Um there must be some sort of like agobiamiento, no? How exhausting it is to keep being a witness to these horrors and knowing that you have to write about it. And in order to write about it, you have to know much more about it, and you have to even put yourself in the place of suffering people to give them the voice that they were denied.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say first of all that um, it is exhausting to bear witness to horror it's always worse to be the victim of that horror. Uh, so I always keep that in mind. I have had uh, strange reactions sometimes writing a poem. Um, I, I wrote a poem once about a place in Chile I had visited called Villa Grimaldi. And Villa Grimaldi, some people referred refer to it as a prison. It was not a prison. It was a center of interrogation torture Uh, and execution in Chile after the golpe. Uh, And when General Pinochet took power, this is where many of the desaparecidos were in fact disappeared. So I went there with a friend of mine. I got a tour from a former uh, inmate and survivor of uh, Via Grimaldi. We stayed there for about four hours. And then I uh, came home and uh, I wrote a poem And in the process of writing the poem, I started to feel very sick, like I had the flu. And um, I called a a professor of mine, a mentor, uh, Steve Stern from the University of uh, Wisconsin, uh, Madison. His specialty is Chile, human rights violations in Chile under Pinochet. And when I described what I was doing, and I told him that I was feeling sick, like I had the flu, He said, stop, stop right now, stop what you're doing. He said, the same thing has happened to me. He said, what you're experiencing is a form of secondary PTSD. He said, you are are immersed in all these details of torture and execution. And I was doing that because it wasn't enough for me to visit the place physically. I started reading all the documents I could find in English Mm -hmm. or Spanish about what happened there. Uh, there, was, there was a swimming pool, crazy, right? There was a swimming pool in the middle of Ida Grimaldi, where the guards and the officers and their families would swim back and forth, but where they also could hear uh, from a very short distance um, the, the cries of those who were being tortured. And where once in a while they would interrogate a prisoner by dragging him back through the rope in the swimming pool and the more i read the sicker i got and so steve said put it down give it a week wait till your symptoms go away and we're just remember that you are experiencing this if it comes back you have to stop again and so i was very very careful when i came back to that poem i said all right i'm going to write this I am not going to keep it at arm's length. I have to let this. I have to let these sensory details in, or it's not a poem. A part of what you're experiencing when you hear what I write or you uh, read what I write is an, is an emphasis on the on the image, on the senses, uh, to make it concrete and vivid and real. Without that, it's not a poem. It's certainly not my poem. But to do that, I have to let the emotional experience and the physical experience come in. And there are times when it does affect me. Again, not to the degree it affects someone that I'm writing about, but it affects me nevertheless, yes.
2: Right, and then the readers also then become witnesses through your poetry.
1: Yeah, and let's not forget that in a case like Chile, Mm -hmm. the US government and therefore US taxpayers are very directly involved. We bought and we paid for that Mm -hmm. torture chamber. You know, so it's, it's you know, incumbent upon us to remember and yes. to tell the story.
2: Yeah, they yes. have their own once de yeah. septiembre, their own...
1: Uh, right, 11, that's 11. right. 11. The 1st nine eleven was was in Chile, not in the United States. And and so I'm always trying to do something with historical memory. Um, and that applies in Puerto Rico as well, you know. We're, we're witnessing, we're talking about this before we began the podcast. What I call the revolu in Puerto Rico, with the with the voting, you know, or the not voting, you know, um, and it's incredible that that this could be a dress rehearsal for what happens in, in in the mainland United States, you know, voting voting stations everywhere, lines of people waiting to vote everywhere, and they simply don't provide the ballots.
2: Yes, I was. Uh, I, I spoke with the family and friends and some este, in line for, not in line, in their cars, waiting for the the el Colegio Electoral, the where you vote, to open. It didn't open because they didn't get the ballots. I saw an interview with the chairman of the State Elections Commission of Puerto Rico. I cannot imagine how in the world did this man get appointed to such an important position. A simple question that was made to him um, by a re- by a reporter was so it's Saturday and you already know Saturday afternoon you need to distribute eight million ballots by Sunday morning, and then his and then you don't have them. So what's going through your mind? So his answer was, "Oh no, the eight million ballots are not all together. It's three hundred ballots per box." The the I just is this guy pretending to be stupid? is Is that the game here, so as you were saying, okay, let's do a dry run in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico has been a dry run for a lot of things, mm-hmm. including in vieques and culebras, we know, which was yeah, those were the islands that were dry runs for let's see how these weapons right these bombs land and what destruction right. they cause
1: or the birth control pill let's see how this works
2: yeah you so know, let's try it first yeah, so then it's it's it can, he, this guy cannot be that stupid. who doesn't know how to answer a question. You know, he can't pretend to be that disingenuous and think, oh no, it's only three on ballots. It,
1: yeah, well, to me, everything we're talking about, that, that, that if Puerto Rico is a, a laboratory. It's a laboratory because it is also a colony. It is a colonial laboratory. That's where you, you practice on the people who are not quite uh, good enough. Who are, who are citizens but not citizens.
2: But yeah. it's the very, but it's, yes, okay. But then it's also Puerto Ricans who are playing into that game.
1: Oh, yeah. No, every colony needs collaborators. Every colony needs collaborators, needs sellouts. Every colony needs someone who is willing to work for the interests of power against their own people. It's always been true. And what we have to do, whether we're here or there, is say no. I was, the other day, I was reading something by Jose de Diego. Of course, the great Jose de Diego uh, poet, lawyer, legislator, uh, independentista, one of the founders of the independence movement, one of the founders of the unionist party that became the nationalist party of Puerto Rico. And I'm um, paraphrasing here and, of course, translating, but de Diego José de Diego said, the no, the word no, is the genesis of the liberation of peoples. The no is the genesis of the liberation of peoples. We must learn to say no. And de Diego warned us then, Puerto Ricans do not know how to say no. No.
2: Yeah, Martin, why do we know how to say no? Why do we not know how to say no in Puerto Rico?
1: Five centuries of colonialism? We are conditioned. I mean, we are the oldest. We, we, we say this all the time, not that anybody, not that anyone's listening. We are the oldest colony in the world. Four centuries in Spain, with Spain, and now more than a century with the United States. We had autonomy under Spain for about five minutes, and then the Spanish-American War of 1898. That requires centuries of conditioning to accept one's fate, to accept the idea that you aren't capable of, capable of governing yourself.
2: Este, well, as you know, some countries who are members of the United Nations do hear el reclamo de algunos puertorriqueños to end this, this status that we are beholding to the United States. But yet, even so, there are many people, especially Puerto Ricans here in the United States and the continent of the United States. I can't stand when people say mainland. This is not the mainland. This is the, the United States. Puerto Rico is Puerto Rico. And mm. in, who want independence from Puerto Rico? And... Then in Puerto Rico, there are a bunch of people that want statehood for Puerto Rico. Mm. How do you interpret that uh, that situation?
1: Well, first of all, I I think it it, it must be clear uh, that the 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 progresista the statehood party has always pushed hard to recruit uh, its its membership from the from the poor. They, they have always, right? You think about where the statehood party is the strongest, in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, they have always done what they can to manipulate and exploit the poorest, the poorest citizens of their country. And they're very good at making promises. You know? so, so there is that. Um, people have been convinced, of course, that independence is not a realistic option and so then they look to statehood, because they know that what they have right now is not working. And you, we, all three of us can remember not that long ago, the most amazing referendum in the history of Puerto Rico, perhaps the most amazing referendum in the history of the world, when the winner of the referendum was none of the above. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, this to me is uh, people danced in the streets. Yeah when none of the above won. What does that and, tell us?
2: And for people who don't know that was, there was a referendum on what status do the people in Puerto Rico want? Do they want statehood? Do they want the current status? Or do they want independence? And the way that each status was described was skewed so people would want to put their check next to statehood. So then another, uh, the, 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 the Free Associated State Party Advocated very strongly none of the above. Don't don't choose any of the statuses because they're all wrong based on fantasies.
1: And we're one. So you know what, what does this all add up to? What it adds up to is we don't know who we are anymore. And we have forgotten who we are because we have forgotten who we were. You know. Uh, We are dealing with the classic crisis of identity, endemic to colonized people. Colonized people think and feel as colonized people. We have historical amnesia. We have forgotten who we are. You know, we think of ourselves all too often as people in crisis, and we are people in crisis. We think of ourselves all too often as as people who have all the social indicators of, of, of crisis. You know, we're the ones who've got high rates of COVID-19 infection, high rates of unemployment, high mm-hmm. rates of, 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 of high school dropout, uh, and so on and so forth. At the same time, all those things are true. What we must remember is that we are also the products of a great history of struggle. Mm-hmm. And we, too, have produced great visionaries that's also who we are. And, you know, this is why I wrote what is, no doubt, the first poem in the English language about Dr. Ramón, Emeterio Betances.
0: That was my, I was asking, basically thinking about why do you choose Emeterio for your poetry? Well, bueno, um, again, this is for
1: people who whether they are, speak English or Spanish, whether they are Boricua or not, who don't know about Dr. Betances. Dr. Ramon Emeterio Betances was one of the major figures uh, of Caribbean history in the 19th century. He uh, was uh, born in Cabo Rojo. He went to Paris for his education, came from a wealthy family And when he came back from Paris as a doctor in 1856, he walked right into a cholera epidemic in Puerto Rico that at that time was especially affecting the Western part of the island, including Mayagüez and that area of the island where he was from. And so he set about to fight this cholera epidemic A cholera epidemic that killed approximately 30,000 people, including approximately 10,000 slaves. Because it hit, of course, the poorest people and the enslaved people hardest of all, as any epidemic would. So Betances came up with all kinds of creative ways of dealing with this cholera epidemic, but. The most creative thing he did was he made sure that the slave barracks were burned to the ground because that's where the disease was being transmitted. This terrible disease that was basically, you know about cholera, you know what it does, is it, that it is ultimate dehydration, that it, it, it drains you all, all fluids and all salts and then leaves the skin blue. So he did that. And in the process of doing that, he came to realize that there was another epidemic on the island, It was the epidemic of slavery. And that had to end too. So at the same time that Francis was fighting against the cholera epidemic, he began fighting against slavery. He began organizing secret abolitionist societies and, and, and enabling slaves to buy their own infants back at the baptismal font. Crazy. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, he was also making arrangements to get slave families off the island to other islands in the Caribbean where they would be free. And so they were doing that too, these abolitionists. And soon enough, the Spanish uh, colonial authorities figured out what was going on and, and Betances had to go into exile. Uh, in fact, he would spend most of his life in exile, mm-hmm. going from place to place. But when he left Puerto Rico, he left having put down a cholera epidemic. He left having begun an abolitionist movement that would result ultimately in the end of slavery by 1873 and he began to plot the Grito de Lares, the revolution against Spain in 1868. And ultimately that revolution would fail, but Betances became essentially, uh, the I think the, the greatest figure of Puerto Rican history.
0: Right? Um, we hear your poet about Bet- Betances?
1: Yes. Uh, So I I wrote a poem, it's called The Five Horses of of Dr. Ramón Emeterio Betances, or Los Cinco Caballos de Ramón Emeterio Betances. There was a legend in Puerto Rico that Mm -hmm. Dr. Betances exhausted five horses in the process of riding from place to place, fighting against the cholera epidemic, fighting against slavery, being everywhere at once, he he exhausted five horses. I came up with this five-part poem, Mm -hmm. so Los Cinco Caballos de Ramón, Dr. Ramón Emeterio Betances, or The Five Horses of Dr. Ramón Emeterio Betances, Mayaguez, Puerto Rico, 1856. One, the first horse. Cholera swarmed unseen through the water, lurking in wells and fountains squirming in garbage and excrement, infinitesimal worms drilling the intestines, till all the water and salt would pour from the body, till the body became a worm shriveling and writhing, a slug in salt, till the skin burned blue as flame, the skin of the peasant and the skin of the slave gone blue, the skin in the slave barracks blue, the skin of 10,000 slaves blue, The blue death face hidden in a bandana, dug graves with the grave diggers who fell into holes they shoveled for the dead. The doctors died too, seeing the signs in the mirror, a hand with a razor, shaking. Two, the second horse. Dr. Betancé stepped off the boat back from Paris, the humidity of the plague glistening in his beard. He saw the stepmother who fed him sink into a mound of dirt, her body empty as the husk of a locust in drought. He toweled off his hands. In the quarantine tents, there was laudanum by the bitter spoonful, the lemonade and broth. In the dim of the kerosene lamps, there was the compress cool against the forehead, the elixir of the bark from the Sinchona tree. For peasants and slaves moaning to their gods, The doctor prescribed chilled champagne to soothe the belly. For the commander of the Spanish garrison, it was silence, bitter as the spoon. Three, the third horse. At every hacienda, at every plantation, as the bodies of slaves roll one by one into ditches all hip bones and ribs, drained of water and salt, stripped of names, Dr. Batances commanded the torch for the barracks where the bodies would tangle together, stacked up as if they never left the ship that sailed from Africa, kept awake by the ravenous worms, the plague feasting upon them. Watching the blue flames blacken the wood, the doctor and the slaves saw another plague burning away, the plague of manacles scraping the skin from hands that cut the cane, the plague of the collar with four spikes for the runaways brought back or the fourth horse, the pestilence of the masters, stirred by spoons into the coffee of the world, spread first at the marketplace at auction, the coins passing from hand to hand. So Dr. Betances began at church with 25 pesos and pieces of eight, pirate coins dropped into the hands of slaves who drop into the hands of masters buying their own infants at the baptismal font. The secret society of abolitionists shoved rowboats full of runaways off the docks in the bluest hour of the blue night, off to islands without masters. Even the doctor would strangle in the executioner's garrote, spittle in his beard if the soldiers on watch woke up from the opiate of empire. Five, the fifth horse. The governor circled his name in the name of empire. The Dr. Betances sailed away to exile, the island drowning in his sight, but a vision stung his eyes like salt in the wind. In the world after the plague, no more plague of manacles. After the pestilence, no more pestilence of masters. After the cemeteries of cholera, no more cholera spikes or executioners. In his eye burned the blue of the rebel flag and the rising of his island the legend calls him the doctor who exhausted five horses sleepless as he chased invisible armies into the night listen for the horses
0: wow
2: we do have such extraordinary men and women in our history that poem that speaks to Betances' strength, his power, his perseverance, his sense of justice. We have so many. And here in the United States, I think we're 5 million here in the US, and we're 3 million on on the island of Puerto Rico. And I think that what does not get taught at all, because if you can name like two or three schools where where Betances is taught, then you're not teaching it enough. How extraordinary our history is, how it is populated by so many extraordinary men and women. Yes. And here, so if in Puerto Rico, there's that colonization and those agent provocateurs and those people who sell their souls. Then here, who are we here that, that we're not advocating hard enough or, or enough times to say, look at our history. Look at where we come from. We should be so proud of ourselves.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, no, somos los olvidados, somos los invisibles, um, you know, and, and we, we have to insist that, uh, that we have a reflection in the mirror, we're not vampires, but there is a reflection in the mirror, we should be insisting on our history being taught in our schools. And by our schools, I don't just mean Holyoke. I mean any place where there is a school, our schools. Because Dr. Bertansis is a 19th century figure who stands with the great figures of that century. And he deserves to be taught. His example could inspire us to the vision that we need today. Look at what I'm talking about in that poem. We are faced with a pandemic today, just as he was faced with a pandemic that killed 30,000 people in Puerto Rico. We are faced with the other pandemic of racial oppression, Dr. Betances dealt with too. What? he did was to develop the vision to fight both of those pandemics at the same time. Dr. Batansis did not wait till he was done with cholera to begin fighting against slavery. He did not wait until it, it was, they, they could take away all the all the, 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 the tents where people were being treated before he formed abolitionist societies. And his, his ultimate conclusion was we need a revolution. That was the vision he took away. That the only answer to the cholera epidemic, the only answer to the racial oppression that still grows from the legacy of slavery is a revolution. And that revolution takes whatever form it takes to be effective. So so that we can finally move forward as a people, as a society and and much as i i i am inspired by all kinds of historical examples from everywhere why not doctor fatans mm-hmm. why why not you know we are you know we are so much more than than you know than people think we are than we think we are how many of us don't know our own history mm-hmm. how many of us don't know who we are and how many of us as boricuas lash out at ourselves, lash out at the mirror image uh, because that is the, the one closest to us within arm's length. We are never close enough to see the true enemy. We are never close enough to lash out at the true enemy. Instead, we lash out at each other and we victimize each other and we betray each other and that has to stop.
0: When? No, go ahead.
2: I would love to end it there, because that is <laughs> that is that is a great ending to this conversation. Sure. And este, I'm very moved by what you said, Martín. Mm. It's like, you know, we're in this pandemic, we're in a heat wave, everything sucks, Trump, you know, I got some health issues going on. Todo es una mierda. En Puerto Rico ya no saben cómo llevar primaria. You know, it's like, but I, in listening, it's like, yeah, okay, that was the dry run. All right, now it's making sense. Yeah. And yeah. so.
1: Yeah, and, 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 you know, in the meantime, it's, it's so important for us to, you know, hablando como boricuas, es muy importante decir que somos más, somos más que a bendito. Sí. Mm-hmm. You know, yo no soy yeah. bendito.
2: Yo no soy bendito tampoco. No, tampoco.
1: Entonces, mira, mi padre Francisco Elijah Pada, Franca Pada, nació en Utuado, Puerto Rico, en el año 1930. Su su, abuelo era el alcalde de Utuado, Buenaventura Ruiz. Es la cuña de la familia. Entonces, cuando yo vi en, en la televisión y online, el video de Utuado sufriendo durante el huracán y yo eh, puse a hablar a mi padre en eh, una caja de cenizas en, 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 en mi oficina entonces salió el poema siguiente carta de mi padre letter to my father october 2017 you once said My reward for this life will be a thousand pounds of dirt shoveled in my face. You were wrong. You are seven pounds of ashes in a box, a Puerto Rican flag wrapped around you, next to a red brick from the house in Guadalupe where you were born, all crammed together on my bookshelf. You taught me there is no God, no life after this life, so I know you're not watching me type this letter over my shoulder. When I was a boy, you were God. I watched from the seventh floor of the projects as you walked down into the street to stop a public execution. A big man caught a small man stealing his car, and everyone in Brooklyn heard the car alarm wail of the condemned, He's killing me! At a word from you, the executioner's hand slipped from the hair of the thief. The kid was high, was all you said when you came back to us. When I was a boy, and you were God, we flew to Puerto Rico. You said, my grandfather was the mayor of Utuado. His name was Buenaventura. That means good fortune. I believed in your grandfather's name. I heard the tree frogs chanting to each other all night. I saw a banana leaf and elephant palm sprouting from the mountain's belly. I gnawed the mango's pit and the sweet yellow hair stuck between my teeth. I said to you, you came from another planet. How did (laughs) you do it? You said, every morning, just before I woke up, I saw the mountains. Every morning, I see the mountains. In Utuado, three sisters, all in their 70s, all bedridden, all Pentecostales who only left the house for church, lay sleeping on mattresses spread across the floor when the hurricane gutted the mountain the way a butcher slices open a dangled pig and a rolling wall of mud buried them, leaving the four sisters staggering to the street, screaming like an unheeded <clears throat> prophet about the end of the world. In Utuado, a man who cultivated a garden of avocado and carambola, feeding the avocado and star fruit to his nieces from New York, saw the trees in his garden beheaded all at once like the soldiers of a beaten army, and so hanged himself. In Utuado, a welder and a handyman rigged a pulley with a shopping cart to ferry rice and beans across the river where the bridge collapsed, witnessed the cart swaying above so many hands that raised a sign that told the helicopters, Campamento Los Olvidados, camp of the forgotten. Los olvidados wait seven hours in line for a government meal of skittles and Vienna sausage or a tart to cover the bones of a house with no roof as the fungus grows on their skin from sleeping on mattresses drenched with the spit of the hurricane. They drink the brown water waiting for microscopic monsters in their bellies to visit plagues upon them. The nurse says, these people are going to have an epidemic. These people are gonna die. The president flips rolls of paper towels to a crowd at a church in Guanabo, Zeus lobbing thunderbolts on the locked ward of his delusions. Down the block, Cousin Ricardo, her niece's boy, says that somebody stole his can of diesel. I heard somebody ask you once if Puerto Rico needed to be free, and you said, tres pulgadas es sangre en la calle. Three inches of blood in the street. Now three inches of mud flow through the streets of Utualo and troops patrol the town, as if guarding the vein of copper in the ground, as if a shovel digging graves in the backyard might strike the orb below, as if La Brigada, swinging machetes to clear road, might remember the last uprising. I know you are not God. I have the proof. Seven pounds of ashes in a box on my bookshelf. Gods do not die, and yet I want you to be God again. Stride from the crowd to seize the president's arm before another roll of paper towels sails away. Thunder Spanish obscenities in his face. Banish him to a ruthless rainstorm. In so he unravels one soaked sheet after another, but there is nothing left but his cardboard heart. I promised myself I would stop talking to you, white box of great grit. You were deaf even before you died. Hear my promise now. I will take you to the mountains, where houses lost like ships at sea rise, blue and yellow from the mud. I will open my hands. I will scatter your ashes. In